Great Radio. This week on Broadway for Sunday, December 23rd, 2018. My name is James Marino, and in the broadcast today we have Peter Felicia and Michael Portantier. Peter is a theater journalist and historian with a number of books. His most recent is The Great Parade, which is available everywhere. His columns appear at MTI, Masterworks, Broadway, Broadway Select, and many other places. Good morning, Peter. Good morning. Good morning. Also with us is Michael Portantier. Michael is a theater reviewer and essayist. He's also a theatrical photographer whose photos have appeared in the New York Times and other major publications. You can see his photography work at filespotphoto.com. Good morning, Michael. Good morning. Good morning. So it is uh, just mere hours from the Christmas holiday and it's been very quiet on Broadway. So we don't have... uh, Broadway show to talk with you about today, but Michael got a chance to see Norm Lewis in a Christmas concert, Christmas show, something like that, Michael. So why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, well, I uh, I always try to choose my holiday entertainment carefully because, you know, what's worse than sitting through a, a bad holiday show? <laughs> <laughs> and there's so many options as far as holiday themed entertainment in, in the city. I'm sure all our listeners know that. So this year so far I, I i don't yeah i don't think i have any left because it's almost christmas uh but i saw two i saw norm lewis <clears throat> do uh his show called nutcracker cool at uh feinstein's 54 below and i also saw daniel reichard do his annual christmas show this year uh, at a place called haswell greens which is on uh, 52nd street you know the same block as uh the uh the neil simon and uh it's just down from there and i think it's a new space or a new space i'm not sure what it used to be uh but it's a really nice big uh space that i guess multi-purpose restaurant bar and live music so uh look that up because it's a place that i think you you might really enjoy seeing i don't know what kinds of acts they normally have there but daniel um, he has been doing his Christmas show for, I think, 11 years now uh, in various venues. Last uh, year, he was at he was at the Rose Building at Lincoln Center. It was very, very high tone. And this year was a lot more, uh, you know, informal and a, a little more downscale, but just really, really fun. And, all, you know, lots of his friends and supporters were there. So it was very festive. And... Um, he had a great band and Jesse Vargas as his musical director. And they did a lot of wonderful Christmas and holiday themed, winter themed songs, old and new, uh, in all styles, including uh, there were two highlights I wanted to mention. One was that Daniel did Turkey Lurkey Time with what certainly looked to me like the original choreography. Wow. Uh, <laughs> Uh, he didn't ask. Uh, he didn't try to get um, friends to join him in that. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I thought I think he was merciful in that way because it is very tough choreography, very very energetic. So he just did it himself, and at the end of it, I swear to God, he was sweating. Uh, I wanted to hand him a, a you know, a, a, a towel or something, <laughs> uh, but he. The audience just went nuts because if you know that choreography, it really just builds to a frenzy. And, and you know, but he was still singing all the time. It was really kind of incredible. I hope uh, somebody did a video of it. It, it was just ma- amazing. And then another highlight was uh, that Daniel sang uh, 
there's an old song. I'm not sure if the title is Christmas ABC or Christmas Alphabet, but it's C is for da 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 da, H is for da da da. Uh-huh. You know, put it all together, you spell Christmas. Well, um, he rewrote the lyrics uh, to reflect current you know, pop culture and things that are in the news today. And they were so funny and clever that the audience just loved it. And that was his, uh, I think it was his first number or maybe his second number. It was right at the top of the show. So was, he really was the S for shutdown. <laughs> no, I think it was uh, a couple of days too soon for that to, to be mm-hmm. to, like completely in the news. Mm-hmm. But there were things like that. There were several, <laughs> several things like that. And, uh, you know, Daniel was in Forbidden Broadway uh, for a bit. And so who knows, maybe some of that um, – rubbed off on him because they, you know, I think last week we talked about, I talked about the new lyrics that Amy Heckerling wrote for Clueless, which are really, unfortunately, not that good. Uh, there's a there's a great talent to parody lyrics, uh, if that's the correct word for them. Um, and some people have it and some people don't. Well, uh, you know, uh, Gerard Alessandrini has it and it seems like Daniel has it too. So um, who knows, maybe he'll do more of that in the future. It was really, really great. And then um, I saw on, let's see, I, I went on Wednesday the 19th to Feinstein's 54 Below to see Norm Lewis uh, in his Christmas show, which uh, he did several performances there and it was it was really great. He has one of the most beautiful voices i think in in musical theater and um it's great to uh see him do a whole show where he can really show uh his talent and his his voice and he and he he's also very uh, he has a very warm uh personality that that is perfect for a, a you know a one person show like that. Uh, again, you know, lots of people, lots of friends, lots of fans. But I'm sure there were a lot of just regular people too who uh, had come and decided they wanted to spend you know um, part of their holiday at Feinstein's 54 Below, which is such a beautiful room, and they got a really great show for it. Uh, the let's see the uh, the uh, program included. Um, Ave Maria, Oh Holy Night, uh, a song called "Be Aware" uh, by Burt Bacharach and Hal David. Very, uh, very mm. obscure song. Yeah, mm. yeah, and um, a song called "Wouldn't It Be Why Couldn't It Be Christmas Every Day" uh, that was written by Walter Fasani and Jay Landers. Uh, th- these are some of the the less famous things uh merry christmas baby uh but also uh, there was a great moment at the beginning where norm did little drummer boy um with uh he had a, a wonderful band and including the the drummer had bongos uh and so he did that a wonderful arrangement of little drummer boy uh but then uh right after that he did waiting for life uh, from what's on the side, which is not a Christmas song, but you know, the, just the, the, uh, that wonderful energy and, and, and enthusiasm and looking forward to life of that song that, 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 that turned out to work really beautifully. Uh, and then another non Christmas song that, that really just felt so in tune with the spirit of the season was home from the whiz. Um, so I've sent uh, a, a, a sample of that to James. Maybe we can include that uh, as our uh, music for this, for this week's podcast, for our intro and our outro. Uh, 
I've always I've always loved Home from the Wiz. I just think it's such a beautiful song, and I was glad that it was included. Oh, and um, and and uh, finally, I I can't fail to mention that. Um, also in the show was People from Funny Girl, which, you know, first of all, uh, one could say it's certainly germane to this season and just in terms of uh, human connection and the, the main theme of it. But also uh, trivia, trivia. Uh, I'm not sure if this has ever been proven, but many people contend that People was originally written for Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol. No kidding. Because uh, the the authors of the song, Julie Stein and Bob Merrill, were working on that. Uh, that, sure. that show aired in 1962. And uh, then, uh, t- you know, two years later, I guess, came Funny Girls. So I'm not sure if the, what the exact story is. I don't know if it's supposed to be only the music uh, that was written for Funny Girl. And then maybe the, the, the lyrics needed to be written Uh uh, I'm sorry. The, the the maybe only the music was written for Mr. Magoo's Christmas Carol, and maybe with a different lyric, and then maybe the lyrics had to be written for Funny Girl because it's, uh, uh, you know, it's it's not again, it's not specifically Christmas themed. But it would be funny. Uh, I mean, it, w- it would be great to find out. Um, and unfortunately, it's too late to ask either Julie Stein or Bob Merrill. But maybe uh, someone at the maybe. Julie Stein's widow knows. Maybe she's been asked. I'll have to do a little more research and find out if it's ever been, you know, documented. I will uh, tell you what I will know, uh, what yes. I do know. And um, in um, I'm the Greatest Star, the Who is the Pip with Pizzazz section mm-hmm. uh, was definitely written for Subway's Half of Sleeping because I have a demo of Subway's Half of Sleeping in which that section is actually heard musically. So that much I can tell you. But beyond that, I, I never heard that people was going to. But it, it does make sense. Yeah. That, you know, yeah. <laughs> So most interesting. And also we know that uh, like like most composers, Julie Stein was certainly not uh, averse to uh, using trunk songs or things he had used before. And, and there were several examples of that. But, we won't sure. go into. but yeah, so I, I just think that uh, I don't know if that's why they decided to include uh, people in this show, uh, having heard that story. Um, but uh, it, but it but. Whether or not it just struck me as uh, just a, a wonderful little uh, reference that maybe like 99 percent of the people in the world wouldn't get because they don't know that little rumor or factoid. All right. Mm-hmm. So uh, unfortunately, those things have passed us. But uh, yes. but um, there are a handful of videos. And as Michael mentioned, he sent me uh, a number of things uh, and Norm is prolific on uh, YouTube as well as Daniel Reichardt, so uh, we'll throw some of those videos into it. Uh, you know, um, uh, a lot of people uh, complain about Christmas music. They um, they say that they're tired of hearing the same old songs every December. I feel differently about that. Uh, and the way I really feel about that has to do with the fact that during most of the year, when you go into stores or especially coffee shoppy type things um, where the employees have power to uh, set the radio station. I mean, you hear songs that are like, you a jive motherfucker, you a jive boom, boom. So I think it's really <laughs> great, you know, to, um, to have calm, lovely, affirmative songs, at least for a month of the year, you know. So um, I really appreciate Christmas music. 
I completely agree. And before we leave Norma, I did want to mention his musical director was Joseph Schubert, and his bass player was George Farmer. And the drummer, uh, whom I referred to, was Perry Cavari, really, really great drummer. And the show was um, directed by Richard J. Alexander. So that was was a uh, just a really good, very – I don't want to say slick, but very professional, wonderful Christmas show in a, in a beautiful, beautiful room. And I was really glad that I was there. You know, that's an interesting point about slick. You know, I mean, is is it a case where that really is uh, a word that has too much of a negative connotation? Because I, I understand where you're coming from entirely. I know what you mean. Um, there is something about it that, uh, I mean, we hear the term city slicker, you know, mm. and it indicates, you know, uh, somebody was trying to pull a fast one. Um but slick can be a compliment. I agree with you. Yeah, I mean, there's probably a better word that that implies the, posi- is, the yeah. positive of slick without the yeah. possible negative. But I couldn't think of it, so I said slick. <laughs> yeah, and s- slick is a time-honored term in musical yeah. theater. You know, <laughs> you know, I mean, it does indicate that all the cylinders are clicking. Uh, so uh, yes, indeed. So I was going to make a uh, a reference to Joubert meets Javert. <laughs> I, you know, it, it, I can't believe Richard J. Alexander didn't make them say that in the show, you know. Sure. <laughs> no, but there were uh, – the show opened with a little overture and uh, accompanied by slides of Norm in, in all of his roles. And he's done so many, including some that I forgot about. He was uh, – well, aside from Javert and then Miss Saigon, there was also, uh, you know, of course, Phantom. He did that mm-hmm. stint in Phantom. And then he was uh, in the paper mill production of the revised version of The Little Mermaid. Uh, and and uh, and then, you know, a dozen other things. Uh, so so that was great to be sort of given that little career retrospective of uh, you, 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 you maybe don't remember, gosh, he's done a lot. <laughs> oh, oh, Sweeney Todd, of course, which one of my favorite things that I've ever seen him do. You know, it's just really, really, really great career. Mm-hmm. He, uh, he also did Little Mermaid on Broadway, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, and yeah. I think that that was on Broadway, not the paper mill one. Uh, yeah, or okay. did he do it at paper mill? Oh, I, I don't know if he did it at paper mill. But then I was thinking to myself, but he he, he did it on Broadway, definitely. I don't know if he did it uh, there. Tommy, uh, Tommy, you know, we, yes. we saw him in Tommy. We saw him in Sideshow, of course. Uh, yeah. The mm-hmm. uh, mm. uh, La Wild Party. Uh, yeah, yep, things like that. So, so yeah. certainly, Norm. Uh, we have many opportunities to see Norman. It's uh, it's wonderful that he is. I'm looking at his normlewis.com website, and he is busy. He's like he's at Feinstein's in San Francisco now, right now. This this yes. coming up. Yeah, presumably with that same show. Not to diminish his talent for a tenth of a second, but he's also one of the nicest guys you could possibly know, and that is one yeah. of the reasons why he works. One, mm-hmm. one. Yes, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. All right, so um, let's uh, move on to some news this week. They call McDermott, the composer of the rock musical Hair, uh, passed away at the astonishing age of 89, because I always think of Galt McDermott as being so young. I mean, I I, I was like 89. I was like, that had to be wrong. But he evidently he was 89, but he always closer to 90. (laughs) Yeah. And um, 
and and in reading his uh, obituary in the Times, I had not realized that he was a fellow Staten Island or Islander. Oh yeah, or a <laughs> Islander, oh, Staten Islander. Isn't it or? something? You know, I mean, because needless to say, uh, he could afford to have had a penthouse uh, in Manhattan. But yeah, he he likes Staten Island. So uh, you know, Peter, Michael, any remembrances of Galt? I interviewed him many times, um, and <laughs> we got along very well because I mentioned very early on that one of my favorite songs of his was a song called Use My Name, which was from a British musical called Isabel's A Jezebel. And he just fell, saying, oh, oh, that's one of my favorite compositions. Oh, I'm so, you know, this is a very obscure musical. I think it ran 43 performances. And, you know, it's one of those musicals that from the record album, and uh, I don't think it's ever been on CD, uh, unless he put it out, because he did put out a few things on his own. But <clears throat> the funny thing was, you don't get any sense of what the show is about. There are no liner notes whatsoever on the uh, album. And I I later heard that it dealt with abortion. So I can understand why it didn't last very long, because that's a touchy subject, period, and let alone for a musical. But I tell you, it's a really good score. I think he really was a phenomenal, phenomenal composer. And I wish that he had chosen properties that were more in line with uh, commercial uh, ideas, because, you know, after Hair and Two Gents, which I love, I mean, yes. Uh, the lyrics uh, don't fit well. And John Guare and um, a, a, a lyricist named Dennis Green, who worked for them for a while, told me that he just had no sense of uh, correct rhymes. Uh, I'm sorry, stresses on um, um, on lyrics. Um, for example, in Two Gentlemen of Verona, there's a lyric about a meat chopper and it comes out meat chopper, you know, and um, he, he just didn't take that into consideration. But boy, this was a guy who had melodies in his head that were extraordinary, and um, certainly hair, uh, yes. But I mean, I think the music in Two Gentlemen is is certainly wonderful. I mean, a lot of it's pastiche, but it's great pastiche. It's one of those things where the pastiche takes over and it becomes a great song on its own. So um, I I I always love seeing Two Gentlemen of Verona, which I've seen quite a few times, almost as much as Follies, which is kind of interesting because, of course, as any <laughs> musical theater aficionado knows, Two Gents. Uh, beat out Follies for the best um, musical of the year. Not best score. Of course, they wouldn't deny Stephen Sondheim that, needless to say. But um, I, I think it's really a terrific uh, score. And uh, songs um, <clears throat> such as uh, Night Letter, which was a great showstopper, uh, is terrific. Callie Lady, which was uh, a riff on um, the uh, Latin songs, as well as Thurio Samba, which needless to say, it's a samba. Hot Lover is a great old-fashioned song. Um, so, you know, a, a lot of great songs in um, a, a very rhythm and blues song called Love's Revenge, terrific as well. And so uh, whenever I get a chance to see two gentlemen, I always go to see it. Um, and uh, uh, But that score just transfixed me, even with the um, terrible, terrible uh, stresses on the wrong words. But, you know, I really mean this, that um, many years after the fact, Dude, which was a terrible failure. I mean, it, it, uh, in fact, I came up from Boston. I was living in Boston at the time. I came up to see it, and the performance was canceled. That was hardly the only performance that was canceled. But anyway, um, <laughs> he, he put out an album later of Dude, and I think the score to Dude is terrific, too. And I really mean this. For the first few minutes of, well, maybe not minutes, but the first uh, long seconds of the overture, I think that overture is majestic. And I mean that, majestic. 
And the thing is, that is not a word you usually associate with uh, rock music. But um, it really starts off as a terrific overture. And I think the songs are really quite wonderful. Via Galactica never got any type of cast album, but he put out an album of his own, just the music. And some of it, again, you know, is really quite wonderful. I don't know how it went with lyrics. Um, the bootleg that somebody gave me a long time ago is virtually unlistenable. But, but anyway, but then came the human comedy. You know, which I, ironically enough, I mentioned um, as a as a trivia thing a, a couple of weeks ago, and I think that's a fabulous score as well. It's just a shame that um, he didn't work with people who knew more. Um, now, uh, that of course is not true of uh, two gentlemen because John Guare was uh, the um, the book writer lyricist, one of them on that, and uh, you know he's certainly a, a pro to say the least. But so many times um, he just was attracted to projects that didn't seem to be terribly commercial or um, went askew because the uh, people he worked with just wasn't, they weren't um, experienced enough to really know uh, what made good musical theater. Because he, you know, he didn't come from the musical theater background. It was just such a fluke that he even um, got hair. I mean, he was recommended, I think, by an agent. Is that right, Michael? Do you know is what happened there? Well, yeah, I've been reading some and looking at some old interviews with Galt on YouTube, uh, and he talks about how uh, – the well, first of all, Ragni and Rado, uh, the, the who wrote the book and lyrics for Hair, apparently they had written more or less the whole thing without a composer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then they went shopping for a composer. And uh, this, uh, I read that one of the names that came up was Herbie Hancock, oh. uh, uh, but then that uh, didn't work out. I think they said that, that they had him set some things, and he, uh, uh, in setting the lyrics, he like made some little changes, and they didn't like that. And so they they handed uh, their songs, their lyrics to Galt, and he set the lyrics as they were verbatim, and they and that made them really happy. And so I think he, uh, as you said, Peter, I don't think that he minded uh, sometimes having uh, maybe lyrics that didn't scan a hundred percent perfectly, and also that had lyric. Uh, uh, accents on the wrong syllable uh that's just something that he that seemed to fit in with his style i, I you could say it's a a, a jazz thing or, or a rock thing mm-hmm. but um also uh, what else about gold yeah, as james said yes he he's he spent he lived for the majority of his life on staten island but i had forgotten that he was born in montreal yeah right canadian yeah and so he came here and and one of the interviews uh actually a a friend of mine michael toda had a uh a local cable show and and he did an interview with galt and uh tom o'horgan in 1995 i think and uh he asked galt at one point well how did you come to new york and more specifically how did you come to staten island and and galt said because i heard about a cheap apartment Uh, (laughs) i mean to live uh to live on staten island in an apartment in the late 50s or or early 60s i don't even want to Think about what you would have been paying per month, maybe twenty five dollars. I don't know. Really, so, not impossible, right? Yeah, I agree. Yeah. Uh, and that gave him, you know, breathing room. And he, and I know he got, uh, he did a lot in those days. Uh, but he, one of the things he did was he, uh, he hooked up with a friend of mine, uh, Catherine Keatsman, uh, affectionately known as Nikki Keatsman. She's gone now, and she uh, was. Uh, she was associated with a local church, and they let Galt use their organ uh, to compose on. And he was so loyal to them 
that uh, for years thereafter, he would write shows for them. Uh, they would do world premieres of his shows, and then they, you know, they would also do productions of his more famous shows. One of the two uh, productions of the human comedy that I saw was, was with that company uh, on Staten Island. And then uh, I, the other production of that that I saw, by the way, was not too many years ago at the Astoria Performing Arts Center. They did a, a really good human comedy, and that's a very kind of special show, so I understand why it's not done more often. It's through sung. Uh, one could say it's very sentimental. Again, some of the lyrics are very odd uh, by some guy named William Dumaresque. Uh, but I think, but the score is just beautiful. There's so many beautiful things in it. Uh, that really deserves to be explored by uh, anyone who likes hair. I, you know, I, I think you should branch out. If hair is all you know, uh, get a hold of these other scores uh, to, to gentlemen and uh, dude, if you can, and via Galactica, see, see what you can find from these shows. And, uh, you know, they're really interesting. Um, I, I wanted to tell – there was so much I could say about Galt. I interviewed him a few times also. I'll send a, a clip of uh, – uh, a link to when I interviewed him. Uh, the last Broadway revival of Hair, uh, as many of our listeners may remember, started as a uh, a, a semi staged concert in the at the Delacorte in Central Park for only I think three or four performances, with the leads played by Will Swenson and Jonathan Groff, uh, and that then moved to Broadway uh, and uh, Jonathan was replaced by Gavin Creel. But um, that to see that show in, in Central Park where a lot of it is set uh, and also just to, to have it performed outdoors on a beautiful evening, that was, that was amazing in itself. I'll never forget that. I'm so glad I got to see, because again, it was only three or four performances. Did you get to see that, Peter? I did not. No, I, I was out of town, I'm sorry to say, because I would have been there. Because uh, I was um, – Hair opened on Broadway on the 28th of uh, April, 1968, and I was there on June 3rd. Uh, I had heard the Off-Broadway album, and uh, I, I very much was in love with it. Um, uh, even though rock-tinged music is not my type of thing, this was tremendous music, and uh, I couldn't wait to go. And um, I sent away for tickets, and the closest I could get was June 3rd. Uh, um, even though I sent away uh, pretty early. And, of course, some of that had to do with the fact that the show uh, was the really first one to feature any type of genuine nudity. Not a lot, not in the light, I'll grant you, but uh, nudity. And um, that may have been uh, one of the reasons why it succeeded so wildly. But I have seen many productions where there's been no nudity, um, including the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music. And um, the show plays wonderfully. And I also think it made a terrific movie. But um, what was so Im impressive about Hair, too, was the fact that... Um, it was such a crossover to uh, the teen market. And you might say, well, it's a rock musical and it was a rock era. But still, you know, I, it, it was a Broadway show. And um, I just checked and found out that um, in the year 1969, by the, uh, even though it opened in 68, in 69, four of the songs, five of, in a way of manner of speaking, uh, made the top 50. Um, mm. Number 43 was Good Morning Starshine. Number 33 was Easy to Be Hard. Mm. Number 13 was Hair. And number two, and this is where I have to say four or five, uh, was a medley of Aquarius and Let the Sun Shine In by a group called The Fifth Dimension. That number two, finishing only two, Sugar Sugar by the Archies, which I... <laughs> 
dare say has not passed the test of time. Um, so anyway, uh, it, it really was something to see uh, so many songs from a Broadway musical, granted rock tinged, uh, but um, on, on the top 50. I mean, that doesn't happen very often. And uh, that was really the last gasp because the, the hair cast album lasted a long time on the charts and quite a few weeks at number one as well. So, uh, and of course, to be fair, some of that had to do with the fact that it was reasonably profane and, um, you know, people were uh, scandalized and titillated, uh, pick one, and uh, they bought the album because, of course, they heard language that they'd never heard come out of their speakers before. And uh, credit to RCA, um, and I guess it was Andy Merrick, uh, who, um, George Merrick, sorry, I'm thinking of Andy Wiswell, um, who, who said, we're going to do it as is. And um, that, that, that's pretty impressive, especially um, even though the 60s were wild and woolly, the fact still remains that uh, this was unprecedented to hear some words that uh, you just don't hear usually um, coming out of your speakers. Uh, so really, uh, it, it was an amazing score. And yeah, it's funny that as much as I love the original off-Broadway cast album, mm. uh, I have to say that listening to it now seems a little pokey you know, compared to the Broadway album, which um, yeah. is much more spirited. You know, it, <laughs> the original off-Broadway cast album almost sounds like easy listening to me now. But um, another thing I have to point out, there, uh, an Actors Fund benefit, whatever it was, I would have an all-star cast. What a great idea to have Harvey Firestein sing the song Air, which talks about pollution <laughs> and how we're choked and all that kind of stuff, because Harvey's voice is perfect for that, you know, <laughs> to indicate, like, something is really wrong with the air that's making you sound like that. So um, Hare has had a, a, a real wonderful life, and it's, it's so great that um, when you see it, uh, even now, uh, although there's a period piece feel about it because it deals with the Vietnam War, which um, certainly took a long time to end, but thank God it, it did end. Uh, the fact remains that um, so many parallels are still with us here now. And um, uh, so Hare uh, has surprised a lot of people by still being around in our consciousness more than 50 years later after its debut. And, of course, another thing, too, was very important for the public theater because the public theater mm -hmm. opened – the, that place on Lafayette Street that we all go to all the time opened with hair. And the fact that it opened with such a splash and something that became very uh, controversial and appreciated really got the public theater off to a jump start that re really helped it tremendously. Uh, people certainly found out where 440 Lafayette, or whatever it is, <laughs> Lafayette Street uh, in the 400s, they found out where it was, the old um, Astor Library. So it, 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 it really, there are a number of reasons why hair turned out to be very significant. And needless to say, Galt McDermott's music was a, a, such an important factor in its success. Yeah, and uh, but uh, how wonderful for two gentlemen too. You know, mm -hmm. I I I often wonder if uh, some of the two gentlemen votes uh, went to the um, to it because Hare did not win Best Musical because it was a lame duck in a se certain sense. You know, the cutoff date was April fifteenth in those days, and um, here it was April twenty eighth. So by the time the Tonys rolled around the next year, it was kind of a little bit of old news. Yes, of course, it had many years to run, but still, it was kind of old news. And you know, seventeen seventy six, you know, caught everybody by surprise, opening the night before the cutoff. So you know, under those circumstances, you know, Hare was slightly and also ran, and I just wonder if some of the votes went to to gents because uh, people felt, you know, Hare didn't get its due. That may not be true at all, 
but it's something that I've wondered about from time to time. And, um, you know, I, I will also say that, of course, um, two gents picked up some votes because a lot of people found Follies very hard to sit through. And it was a bitter pill for many people to swallow, you know, watching miserable marriages and people at the end. <laughs> claiming that they're going to somehow work it out when we know they're not going to. And Two Gentlemen was such fun. It really was. It, it's hard to even take from the album how much fun Two Gents was um, in at the St. James Theater. I mean, I, it, it truly was one of the best times I have ever had in the theater. And I didn't expect it to be because um, I, I, again, you know, uh, I saw it, I, I didn't see it till June and that was after it's uh, Tony win. And so um, I was a little surprised that Follies didn't win. Uh, and um, so I, I had a chip on my shoulder about it, but boy, it won me over completely. And uh, one of the great strengths of it was the fact that it sort of indicated that this was not one of Shakespeare's masterpieces. And as a result, you could fool around with it. Mm-hmm. It was that type of insouciance to it that really helped it great a bit too. But oh, one song after another, just tremendously performed and tremendously done. And um, so I, I just love it dearly. Uh, and that's um, the reason why. Yeah, you know, of course, we'll never know. We can't go back and and redo history. But I think there's an argument to be made that Hare saved the public theater. Uh, And then, uh, of course, some years later, I think there's an argument that a chorus line saved it again. And then more recently, Hamilton saved it again. Uh, You know, they need uh, things like that to to provide a financial base to do everything else that they want to do. And so... uh, I urge everyone to look up these old interviews with Galt because he talks about all of this stuff. He talks about Joe Papp and and uh, and working with Tom O'Horgan and 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 Rado and Ragney. And he uh, and one thing he does talk about is that he purposely, uh, you know, other people have made this point. Only a, a percentage. And not that large a percentage of the hair score could be classified as true rock. Uh, there's and Galt says that's uh, absolutely intentional. He he thinks it's boring to have one type of music uh, through a whole show. So there, there's jazz. There's uh, some stuff in it that's kind of show busy. Uh, uh, other things that are throwbacks to uh, previous forms of music. And he. Uh, but it's also great that somehow it 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 doesn't seem like a, a a mixed bag in a bad way. Everything just fits together so wonderfully well. That was one of his greatest talents, I think, in that score and other scores. Um, oh, and I did want to to end with I think this is the the sweetest story. I uh, uh, from my friend Ken Torado, who uh, has done. Uh, a lot of acting and directing and set designing on Staten Island for decades and knew Galt and worked with him. And well, actually he didn't really know him that, and that's part of the story. Uh, uh, it turns out that Galt, um, one of his grandsons was named after him, uh, which I, I didn't know until I read this story, but here's Ken's story, uh, that he just posted. He said, I'm sorry that I never got to know Galt McDermott personally, even though he lived around the corner from me for wow. 20 years. <laughs> My children did get to grow up with two of his grandchildren, Galt and Samson, being classmates at the Petridis School. One of my favorite parental memories of that school was my daughter Zoe's kindergarten graduation ceremony. A little boy walked up to the mic and said, we're going to sing Good Morning Starshine because Galt's grandpa wrote it and we love singing it. Mm. I'll remember the chorus of five-year-old's 
voices caroling, gliddy glop glooby, nibby nabby la 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 lo, the rest of my life. Staten <laughs> Island and, and the music world have lost a great talent. Well, you know, uh, what you said reminds me of uh, Tess Harding in Woman of the Year uh, when she had her famous 11 o'clock number with Jan Donovan. uh, Both of them won Tonys, uh, Lauren Bacall and Marilyn Cooper, because in the song The Grass is Always Greener, uh, Tess Harding sings to uh, Jan Donovan, do you know who your neighbors are? (laughs) <laughs> That's wonderful. Well, apparently, you know, this guy didn't know who his neighbor was either. Not in the real sense of the word. So it's really too bad that uh, he didn't. Because um, there was a crustiness about Galt, and you really did get the impression that one of the reasons um, he did uh, comparatively little, I mean, you know, a lot of people uh, in the last 50 years did a lot more um, in terms of composing for Broadway. But uh, you did get the impression that um, there was a little bit of it's my way of the highway with Galt. I have to admit that as well, that any time I talked with him, uh, he, he gave me that impression that uh, uh, if, if, if he didn't really agree with, with everything that uh, he, he was hard to work with. Uh, and again, that was an impression. But – you know, on the other hand, um, when he did find uh, properties that he wanted, he came through even if anybody else didn't. Mm-hmm. All right. So uh, we'll have a bunch of links back to various articles on Galt uh, in the notes at broadwayradio.com. Talking about It's My Way or the Highway. Mm-hmm. Uh, this week we heard that there was a day, uh, the upcoming revival of All My Sons had to uh, make a change at the helm that director Gregory Mosher has resigned from the production and is being replaced by Jack O'Brien. Any thoughts about this story? Um, uh, You know, All My Sons is still happening on schedule, so they say, coming up in uh, this April. Well, I'll tell you this. What really surprised me tremendously was that usually when you hear a director has left a project, you don't hear that the other director has already been hired. And that astonished me. I was very surprised to hear that uh, because I fully expected fully that they would say a new director would be uh, uh, named in the next few weeks. So uh, they really got on the ball very quickly. I mean, this is the type of thing you usually see now it's been postponed to next season. So, uh, so it hasn't. And I think that's really quite great that um, the producers are really uh, intent on getting this in. So I was very, very pleased to hear that. Uh, Michael, any thoughts about all my sons? Well, apparently it comes down to uh, the method of alternative or colorblind or inclusive casting, what, uh, whatever term you want to use for that. And, and uh, from what I have read, uh, my understanding is that Moshe wanted to do it one way and uh, – and uh, the uh, Miller estate in, 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 in the person of Rebecca Miller did not want to do it that way. So now they're I presumably going to do it another way. And maybe we should wait and see what happens with the rest of the casting before we, we, we say more. Yeah, it's interesting because the article from uh, Peter Marks in the Washington Post um, uh, outlined Mosher's statement that he uh, Mosher felt as though he was being uh, restricted in his artistic uh, guidance of this production by through his uh, through the the casting decisions that he was making and the Miller estate, uh, you know, 
as we've talked about before, uh, writers have much more control over uh, mm. productions um, in the Broadway sense than, say, Hollywood or or television, where in essence they have no se- no say once the studio mm. has bought the rights to something. So um, Rebecca Miller, the daughter of Arthur Miller, said in a statement that that was issued about uh, using actors of color that she was worried about Moshe's concept not being fully thought out and that she added that she's very excited to open my father's work up to to diverse casting, hence an African-American Lohman family and um, Death uh, death of a Salesman in London and Rachel Chavkin's um, upcoming multiracial The American Clock. So uh, as Michael just alluded to and actually just said, you know, I guess we're going to have to wait for this to play out more. Interesting tagline at the very end of the Washington Post article was that the the casting uh, that was uh, seemingly central to this uh, disagreement between the estate and Mosher, uh, the person that Mosher wanted to play the role is still in contention for that same role. Mm. So uh, I'm not sure that we have heard all of the information or the last of this uh, situation. Uh, But I I imagine when we hear all of the information, we still won't be hearing all of the information, but that's another story. (laughs) That's true. But in the meantime, I I guess we can still expect to see Annette Bening and Tracy Letts uh, in the the two lead roles. That's what they say. Uh, They're still uh, scheduled to open the American Airlines Theater on April 4th. So um, over – while we – as I mentioned at the top of the show, we don't have a lot of stuff uh, on Broadway these days. Uh, Broadway HD is – uh, it's got a lot of stuff coming if you are subscribed to Broadway HD. You can watch A Christmas Carol Goes Wrong, which is from the Mischief Theater Company who brought us the uh, uh, the play that goes wrong. Uh, so The Christmas Carol Goes Wrong, I haven't seen it, but uh, but those folks at Mischief are very funny. Have uh, Either one of you guys subscribed to Broadway HD? I can't imagine you're at the theater every night that it would be... Uh, like- <laughs> No, no, uh, there's a part of me that would uh, like to, but yes, it's true that I, uh, I watch very little TV, um, period, because I'm, yeah. I'm either writing or at the theater. So, um, <clears throat> but uh, I'm delighted that the play that goes wrong isn't closing, um, at least uh, right, after yeah. all, uh, that they are going to be moving off Broadway, and I think it'll be even funnier there in a smaller space, uh, and I can't wait to go again. I think it's so interesting how this has proven to be a workable business model uh, for Off-Broadway. You have a show that starts on Broadway or or sometimes starts Off-Broadway and moves to Broadway and plays for a long time. And then I guess name recognition kicks Mm -hmm. in Mm -hmm. and then and then and then it can move back to an Off-Broadway space, whereas, as we all know, uh, as people keep saying, uh, commercial off-Broadway uh, yeah. is not not exactly dead, but it's it's not what it used to be uh, no. for a number no. of reasons, mostly real estate values, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, so I uh, but I'm glad they they, you know, somebody hit on this. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, and how wonderful that uh, the people who are in these shows get to continue working. And uh, and I think it's going to bring a lot of pleasure to a lot of people. Uh, this, to me, is one of the best comedies we've had in a long, 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 long time. And uh, I've seen it three times, and I'd like to go again. 
Well, from the press release, uh, producer Kenny Wax said, after almost two years on Broadway, we think we are finally ready for (laughs) (laughs) off-Broadway. Which, I mean, this is the damn producer. (laughs) They're so funny. No, but even, yeah, yes, even the press release was written in, you know, in the style of the <laughs> title. Oh, how I wish more press releases were like that press release. <laughs> well, I've often wondered, um, uh, because the big sign is Times Square must close January 6th and close is spelled like C-L-O-T-H-E-S. Mm. Um, you know, I, I just wonder how many people, you know, gasp, you know, tourists saying, oh, my God, they made that terrible mistake. <laughs> Not understanding that it's a purposeful mistake to get your attention, which indeed it did under those circumstances. How many, how many people look at the playbill and say, oh, my goodness, the playbill is uh, cut, uh, is cut. Yeah, you know, they, they, yeah, it's printed yeah. wrong. You know, it's... Sure. The sign upside down at the theater, too. Yeah, the plastic, yeah. exactly. So, uh, yeah, so uh, they've they've done what they could to make it seem like uh, there were a lot of mistakes going on here. But um, yeah, if they're crazy, they're crazy like a fox, not crazy like Fox News. That's a different thing entirely. Different, but um, yeah. crazy like. <laughs> so uh, from the play that goes wrong to maybe the musical that went wrong, but I'll get your opinions on this. Uh, we heard that uh, Encore's Off Center announced their uh, 2019 season. And uh, they've got uh, three shows here uh, working from Stephen Schwartz, uh, Promenade, and then Roadshow, which um, this, yeah. the Stephen Sondheim show uh, of, of fame because of its multiple failures. Uh, do we think that Roadshow, somebody's going to reinvent it again, or is it going to be presented as written, or have you heard anything? What are your thoughts? I was I sh- really surprised to to see that they're doing it again, and I guess that just must be, you know, for a, uh, well, for the Sondheim connection. Obviously, that you know, he thank God is still with us, and mm. and I guess they've done already done the other two shows of his that could remotely be considered uh, underappreciated. Uh, Anyone can whistle and merrily we roll along. Although the latter at this point is, you know, I mm. mean. Those days of that being underappreciated, I think, are long gone. <laughs> coming soon. Yeah, soon. Merrily we'll coming soon. soon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I was a little surprised to see Road. I was very surprised, actually, to see Road Show uh, in the mix. But uh, but it, it is a good show. I saw it in Boston uh, about a year ago, and I liked it very, very much. And um, some of the music is quite fine. So uh, I'm, I'll, I'll look forward to seeing it again. Working was the surprise for me because, um, mm. frankly, uh, we got the impression that this was all off-Broadway material yeah. that was going to be at off-center. And Working had a Broadway run uh, back in the late 70s, and um, I've always thought of it as a Broadway show. Nevertheless, I mean, I can understand where it would reduce very well because there were so many solos in it um, as each person um, – comes forward to talk about his or her life. And uh, so I, I, it does reduce well. Now, of course, City Center is a big space, so uh, maybe the reducing well isn't such a, a good idea. But my point is that I, I can see it um, in an off-Broadway scale. So if, if that was the, um, the loophole that they were looking for, I can understand it. It's, it's a very fine show. I, I, I know that Stephen Schwartz loves it dearly, is very proud of it. And frankly, my very favorite song of all the Stephen Schwartz has ever written is It's an Art, the waitress's song, Dolores Dante. That song impressed me so much, so much, because here's a waitress who loves her job. And I, I was so moved by this that when I went to Chicago, 
I actually got out the phone book, looked up Dante Dolores <laughs> and called her to tell her how terrific I thought she was. This was just at the advent of answering machines and she didn't have one. And so the phone just rang and um, I guess she was at work having a good time, <laughs> you know, which is fine, but I would have loved to have talked to her. And by the way, if you look at the original Dolores Dante interview in working by Studs Terkel, you'll even be more impressed at what Stephen Schwartz accomplished with that song. So um, it's an all-time favorite with me, and I am really looking forward to it. I don't know if I ever told this story, but when I was writing Let's Put on a Musical, the book um, which told um, community theaters and high schools, you know, what to do, what to avoid, et cetera, et cetera, that I was um, – Looking um, for, at all the four major houses, uh, Roger Hamstein, MTI, um, Samuel French, and Tams Whitmark, and I couldn't find Godspell anywhere. Nowhere was Godspell, and I couldn't understand why. So anyway, I'm walking up Broadway, and um, I remember I was under the marquee of cats at the Winter Garden, and Stephen Schwartz is coming down, and I thought, oh, this is great. I can ask him. Um, so I said, look, I'm doing this book about you know community theater high school, and he immediately said – Oh, I hope you put working in there, you know, showing how much that meant to him. And the irony was that's how I sold the book because that was my prototype. When I sent it in uh, the proposal, I used working as an example of what the book would be like because I think it's a great show for community theater because you can actually get the same people who do those jobs to be in the show. And you can also get advertisers who have those businesses to advertise in your program. So I thought it was the ideal thing to use. But the fact that he mentioned it, I mean, Stephen Schwartz is really great about they're all my children and I love them equally. And <laughs> And, um, and that's the way he is, and uh, it speaks well of him. And uh, so I'm very glad about working. Promenade's an odd show. I saw a tiny off-Broadway uh, revival, uh, like a one-night concert some years ago, and um, it's very odd. I mean, I, I love the song called The Cigarette Song, which I think is terrific. But Al Carmines um, was a very hit and miss composer, and you really get the impression he sat down and uh, just wrote whatever notes came to him and passed it in. Um, he, he's he was the strangest of them all. And However, um, I wish they would have done Joan, uh, which I really think is a magnificent score. It's a new take on Joan of Arc, um, and uh, it deals with uh, um, countercultural people in the uh, late 60s. And uh, that's what Joan of Arc is. I mean, she's somebody who um, is uh, trying to go against the system. Uh, and I think that's his best score. But Promenade has some fascinating things in it, and I, I, I'm certainly looking forward to seeing a first-class production of it. Well, I do agree that, 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 you know, technically there's really no reason why working should be in the off center season. Mm -hmm. Uh, um, I, they might've put it in the regular encore season, except that's already set. Right. Mm -hmm. Uh, but, um, uh, I, I am convinced that probably, um, a major or the major reason why they're doing it is because of the Lin-Manuel Miranda. I really agree. Yeah. Because he, you know, there was this revised version of the show that includes, and in fact, they just, I may have mentioned here, they just did the show at Wagner college. Uh, I didn't get to see it, but, uh, I, I think there has been a revival of interest in it. Uh, if, if only, uh, well, the the impetus being the the Lin Manuel connection. But then, you know, when when people do it, hopefully they, you know, they they introduce their audiences to these other great songs by Craig Carnelia and Stephen Schwartz and Mickey Grant and Mary Rogers and James Taylor, et cetera. Uh, so um, yeah, uh, and I 
really look forward to seeing who they get to be in it and uh, and who, you know, it could be a really, really interesting production. You know, it was done on PBS, and I remember uh, Jim Morgan, not the Jim Morgan who runs the York Theater, but um, a lyricist named Jim Morgan who did a show called Quilt, which has never played Broadway or Off-Broadway, but gets a lot of production, and it's about the AIDS quilt, and it's really very good. But anyway, I remember Jim Morgan saying that he didn't like the um, PBS version of working because they had stars doing the right. jobs and he felt that that uh, worked against it. And I guess there's something to be said for it. For example, it's an art was sung by Rita Moreno beautifully and brilliantly, by the way, but I understand his objection. So it will be interesting to see if uh, who they get for this, if they're going to get completely new faces of 2019, um, if that's what they'll turn out to do. And I think that would be a good idea. Uh, of course, you know, when you have stars, people buy tickets more. Um, I, I really believe one of the reasons that Little Shop of Horrors became a hot ticket had to do with the fact that Ellen Green was doing the part. So um, I don't know what will happen here with casting, but um, they may be well advised to get people we haven't seen before in these roles. So uh, going through my press releases for the week uh, that just passed, we also had um, Concord Music Group purchased Samuel French, which is yes. uh, a huge consolidation there. Yes. It's, it, we're, we're coming down to just very few players. If you are going to license a show for uh, amateur stock use, uh, you only have a few places to go now. One-stop shopping. Yes, um, indeed. Only, that, only a few months ago, they had purchased which other one? Was it Tams Whitmark. It was Tams. Yeah, Tams Whitmark. Yeah. Yeah, what's interesting, too, is that um, they are having the heads of those companies, um, Roger Tams, Ted Chapin, and um, Sergeant Aborn from Tams Whitmark, and now Abby um, at uh, Samuel French, uh, Abby Van Nostrum. They are keeping those people um, in in charge. Um, We'll see if that's a long-lasting thing, but at least for the time being, these people have not lost their jobs under this, and that might have been a condition of the the sale, but I um, thought that uh, Ted had left. I don't think so. If oh. if so, that's news to me. Okay, uh, I'm not saying I'm right. I never say I'm right. I'm only telling you what I uh, yeah. hear or think. I could but, remember. Uh, I haven't. I haven't heard yeah. that. Um, so Ted Chapin. Yeah. yeah. No, he hasn't left. Okay. Yeah, I don't think so. That, anyway, not, that's my understanding. Yeah. yeah, mine too. But anyway, who knows? Anything, anything could happen in a minute's notice. But, but um, yes, this is something. And uh, I think at least from the vantage point of um, Tams Whitmark, it's a very good thing uh, because that company uh, seems to have been the doldrums. As for Samuel French, it's not going to matter that much with musicals because they don't have that many. Uh, they certainly don't have as many as the other companies do, which have concentrated on musicals because Sam French, of course, has concentrated much more on plays. So I don't know. Maybe we will get productions of Maggie Flynn now as a result of this. And um, But uh, but all things considered, um, this has more ramifications, the Samuel French sale, for the play market rather than the musical market. And uh, other things that are going on in the middle of the country, the St. Louis Muni, the Muni uh, announced their new season, which um, I, you know, is generally what I expect from uh, the Muni, Guys and Dolls, Kinky Boots, Rogers and Hammerstein, Cinderella, Footloose, Lerner and Lowe's, Paint Your Wagon, Matilda. But they have a 1776 from June 27th to July 3rd. Peter, are you going to be hopping a plane to go see it? (laughs) 
I don't know if I've ever mentioned my my um, <laughs> obsession with the arch in St. Louis. Um, I adored that structure, <laughs> and I go out there just to see the arch. And I'm overdue. I was out there for the 50th anniversary um, a couple of years ago, and um, it, 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 the grounds around it were in tatters because they were building a, a, a new um, way to get to the arch, uh, so you wouldn't have to cross over a highway. So I am overdue for the arch. So I'll go as much for the arch as I will for 17. 76, but I am overdue for a visit to St. Louis. If you came to my apartment, you'd be amazed at how much arch imagery is in here, you know, so uh, <laughs> there's plenty. So uh, I just love that thing. I mean, I, I just look at it the way the monkeys in 2001 look at that monolith. I mean, I, I'm, I'm just <laughs> so anyway, um, yeah, I, I think I will go out. But, you know, for all we talk about the Muni um, doing uh, conventional choices, that was something last year when they did Jerome Robbins Broadway, a show I thought we'd never see again. Mm-hmm. And, um, yeah, and there it was, you know, so God loved them for even considering it, let alone doing it. And it got them into trouble for. A, a well, that's another story. Completely yeah. unexpected yeah. reasons. Well. Completely yeah. unexpected reasons. Yeah. The Muni has uh, got quite a collection of uh, directors here. Guys and Dolls, directed by Gordon Greenberg, Kinky Boots, D.B. Bonds. June, uh, 1776 is Rob Ruggiero, uh, Roger Hammerstein, Cinderella, Marsha Milgram Dodge, oh. Footloose, Christian Borle direct, directing mm, Footloose. Mm, Isn't that mm, interesting? Nice, nice, Paint Your nice. Wagon, Joshua Rhodes, and Matilda John Trataglia from uh, ah, aforementioned uh, – uh, did we mention Avenue Q? No, we were talking about uh, the other Kevin McCollum uh, transfer to – off-Broadway. Uh, Off-Broadway. Yeah. So. But, but Lord knows Avenue Q did well. Yes, it's announced its closing, but still, uh, who, who even expected it to go there? And uh, to last this long has really been quite wonderful. Yeah. Um, have either of you watched the movie The Greatest Showman? No, I've never seen it. You've not no. seen it? Uh, no. So it has to be, it's on high rotation in my house uh, as all of us here enjoy it. Uh, and we watch it at least once a week. My daughter's wow. a big fan of The Greatest Showman. Oh, oh isn't uh, that nice? That's great. And we hear, we hear that the director of The Greatest Showman, the, the movie, says that it is coming to Broadway and they're, uh, they're planning it right now. So uh, it's well, uh, th- written by yeah, Bench that- Pasek and Justin Paul. Yeah. Um, that's not the the very first I've heard of it. it uh, I heard of several weeks ago, and uh, they said that Kiala Settle is already in place. Yeah, to oh, nice. to uh-huh. reprise her her big hit song in that. <laughs> and um, uh, just a few minutes ago, we were talking about "Merrily We Roll Along." Uh, the New York Public Library is going to have a uh, reunion of "Merrily" in January. Uh, I'm really not. I read this article four or five times from Playbill, and I'm not really sure what is actually going to happen. Have any of you guys heard about this? No, thing? no, not at all. Um, but uh, I will say that if anybody's interested in going, it's going to be hard to do because I understand it's already been sold out, so to speak. Yeah. Um, you know, and uh, that's too bad because I, I didn't hear about it in time, and I would have loved to have gone. Um, but uh, it also brings up the fact that um, I finally got around to watching the documentary, The Harold Prince. The director's oh, life mm-hmm. that Lonnie Prince uh, Price, Price, sorry, excuse, yeah. uh, who um, who was in Merrily, of course, and uh, really got a lot of attention from that. Um, did and it's it's a it's certainly a wonderful documentary. And um, yes, 
Yeah, it, it it was nice to have so much of Hal Prince talking uh, as opposed to just seeing clips. I mean, the clips are there, God knows. And some of the, I, this must have cost a fortune because I am told to get clearances from um, to get clips on the air really cost so much money. And um, boy, there was so many from shows and some I hadn't seen before from mm. uh, way back when uh, that I didn't even know they existed, that people had taken movies or whatever of yeah. them. I was very surprised and uh, very delighted to see uh, these little clips here and there so so it, it was quite a thing so um you know lonnie price has really done astonishingly well uh and um in his uh post merrily career and uh, has the most broadway credits of anybody from that um from that cast and you might say well yeah because jason alexander had other things to do but uh you know still you know the fact remains is that lonnie price uh, has had the most broadway credits of anybody in that um in that production so the well, York- as for the as yeah, I was going to say as for the library thing, I I expect it's going to be more talk than performance. I'm yeah, not I'm I not agree. Good, I'm not saying there's going to be no music in it, but yeah. I because of the way those things are usually set up, that's what I would expect it to be, mm-hmm. and maybe maybe clips, you know. Yeah, the library performance is on uh, January seventeenth at six p.m. at the Bruno Walter Auditorium. Uh, January 17th, you never know what the weather's going to be. So if it's bad weather, yes, perhaps uh, New Yorkers can get into it at, at the last moment. Uh, and Bruno Walters, a uh, sizable room. So, uh, yeah. Well, you know, yeah. it says in the article here, it says the evening will feature merrily songs as original cast members reunite to share memories, illustrated, rarely seen photographs and archival documents from the New York Public Library Theater Collections. So, uh, I don't know. Maybe we can uh, throw some weight around and uh, get in there. You know, <laughs> that'd be a lot of fun. I've got plenty of weight to throw around, but that's another story. <laughs> it's that time of year, you know. Isn't it? Yeah. It is, well, I know? tell you, I, I, I'm, I don't have a ticket either, and I would have liked to go, but, uh, but I will say that I just uh, am so, so glad that I was at the reunion that they did where i guess it was the 20th year reunion mm-hmm. uh where they did the whole show <laughs> with the original cast i mean basically the whole not the whole not all no, the, the, the score, score. score. Yeah. yeah uh that was that was amazing and then yes and and then this wonderful documentary uh that was released just a couple of years ago uh they did such a beautiful job with it and and mm. uh, and so it's you know the the history of, of that show is absolutely mind-boggling when you think sure of is. what what was must have been going through their heads while this was happening. It's just incredible. <laughs> if you haven't seen that documentary, the best worst thing that ever could have happened, I'm I'm reminded of a line from Julius Caesar: "If you have tears, prepare to shed them now, because uh, every time I watch it, I wind up crying at the end." So I think it might happen to you too. All right, so that kind of wraps it up for this morning. Before we get on to trivia, I want to remind everybody that you can subscribe to these broadcasts by going to the front page of broadwayradio.com. There's a subscribe link. That way, each and every time we have a new episode of This Week on Broadway, it'll be automatically downloaded to Apple Podcasts for you. Of course, you don't have to listen to us in Apple Podcasts. There's many ways to listen to us. You can listen to us in iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, anywhere that you can listen to find our podcasts will carry Broadway Radio. Contact information for Peter, for Michael, and for me can be found in the show notes as well as links to some of the things we've talked about today, including all those things, the best, worst thing that have ever happened in the list of shows that is happening at Encores and at Muni and things like that are in the show notes. So, Peter, do you have an answer to last week's trivia? 
Well, the question was, a musical opened 50 years ago this month whose leading lady would eventually win her first Tony. But that would happen a dozen years after her understudy in this production would win her first and only Tony. What's the show? Who's the star? The understudy and the musicals that gave them their Tonys. Well, so many people wrote in to complain and say, the only show that opened 50 years ago this month was Promises, Promises, and nothing in their replies. <laughs> yeah, that, 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 that was Broadway. But off-Broadway <laughs> was the opening of Dames at Sea, uh-huh. whose leading lady was Bernadette Peters, who won her first Tony in 1986 for Song and Dance, a dozen years after Janie Sell, her understudy in Dames at Sea, won for Over Here. For the second week in a row, Nobody got it. So I think we need a a little easier question this week, and this can be my Christmas present. (laughs) What famous musical had a window card that was primarily black, and yet its original cast album used red instead on the front cover? All right. So if you have an answer to that, email us at trivia at broadwayradio.com, and we'll let you know if you're on the right track. Next week, we are going to be talking about a year interview. Um, Peter and Michael and I are going to, you know, break out our calendars and see what in the last year has been been memorable and worth talking about. If you would like... um, us to talk about something specific email us or you know contact us through facebook or twitter or something like that and let us know what your uh what your thoughts are that you think that we should talk about as well so on behalf of michael portantier and peter felicia this is james marino saying thanks so much for listening to broadway videos this week on broadway bye-bye bye now that i have some direction it would sure be nice to be back home Where there's love and affection And just maybe I can convince time to slow up Giving me enough time in my life to grow up Time being my friend And help me start again Suddenly my world's gone and changed its face But I still know where I'm going I have had my mind spun around in space And yet I've watched it growing And oh, if you're listening, God, please Don't make it hard to know if we should believe the things that we see Tell us, should we run away, or should we try and stay? Or would it be better just to let things be? Living here in this brand new world might be a fantasy for me. But it's taught me to love, so it's real, real to me. Look inside our hearts to find a world full of love like yours, like mine. Love